This is the word of God from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are we doing? Man, I'm excited to be with you guys. Uh, I'm excited about this morning, um, mostly because this is, uh, this is my first day to ever preach in a Thunderdome. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. Uh, glad everybody made it through the, uh, through the fire tunnel today. Um, we are excited about VBS. I'm pumped, though, that today we're back in the book of Philippians. So I just want to say, if you're here and uh, this is all new to you and uh, you're not, you would say you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you would say, hey, I'm just here. I'm trying to figure out what it means to follow him. Um, I just want to say that's all any of us are trying to do. And so we're glad you're here. Uh, we just believe that the Bible is supremely helpful in, in us knowing how to do that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into it. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the passage that we just heard. And uh, God, we just want to come to you and and right now say, if you don't help us, none of us are going to be able to understand this or believe it or be able to walk in it. And so today, God, I'm asking that as we open up your word, you would do something really holy and really beautiful in this place that you would change us, change our church in Jesus name. Amen. Well, hey, last month, uh, tell you a quick story about, uh, f- I guess five or six weeks ago, I was walking through the park and, uh, I was not doing anything athletic or physically exertive in any way. I was spending time with my boys. They were all doing uh, soccer training. They were doing soccer practice and I'm just kind of walking and watching. And all of a sudden I felt a massive pain, a pop in the back of my left leg. And I thought in that moment, surely what's happening is I'm being attacked by a vicious dog. <laughs> um, surely I'm, I'm a victim of some kind of a drive-by shooting at South Lakes Park, <laughs> you know? And I turned around and I realized none of those things were happening. Uh, but what had happened is that the, the sheer act of walking was just too much for my body to, be, to handle. 
my, my left calf muscle completely tore and I like bent down and fell over and everybody, it was really embarrassing and fun. Um, and that was a new experience for me. Uh, I'll back you up. In 1994, my family moved to uh, South English Drive in Moore, Oklahoma. And, um, and we moved in next door to Brad Morse and his little brother, Alan. And uh, Brad would become like a lifelong friend of mine. But, but in that moment, what happened is along with several other kids in the neighborhood, man, we just started to run the joint. Like we were completely invincible on every level. Uh, the next three summers were filled with BMX ramps and skateboard ramps. Uh, there was nothing in our neighborhood that could not be jumped over if we, if we would just build a big enough ramp, you know? And we started lighting things on fire to just see what would happen. It was terrible. Um, we, built a, we built a homemade boat, like out of styrofoam, just to see if it would float the duck pond in our neighborhood. And it just didn't, it didn't work. Um, you know, like we came home, like the poison ivy that we were covered in just did not stop us from all of these adventures. And at one point we had kids in the neighborhood in my backyard. Um, and they were, they were like a panel of judges who were scoring us as we would jump off of the roof into my parents' swimming pool. Like we were surrounded by our own greatness. We were totally invincible. And, uh, and, and I don't really know exactly what happened, but the farther I get from those summers in the mid-90s, the more that feeling of invincibility just really wears off. Um, I, I've become a person who injures myself in my sleep. I really do. Um, I have to be really careful to not let my shoulder go out of socket when I reach for the seatbelt <laughs> or when I sneeze. Like I've become the kind of person whose calf, mu- calf muscle tears when I walk in the park. And... Uh, And what I want to say is there's something that happens with age and experience uh, to our bodies that starts to bring some humility into our lives. Has anyone ever noticed this? Have you experienced this? Uh, We start to think of ourselves a little bit differently than we did in our youth. Um, As we mature, we start to realize that maybe we aren't who we thought we were. (laughs) And, uh, And the text that we have today is this invitation to grow up into Christ. And as we grow up, Uh, to see ourselves a little bit differently than maybe we did when we were less mature. There's this invitation from Jesus to see ourselves differently, not in our bodies, but in our hearts and in our minds and in our relationships with one another. So my prayer for myself today and for our church is that we would see that invitation and then we would grab a hold of it. And my prayer is that we would, what, what Paul talks about as this thing where God is changing us from one degree to the next, where we look more like Jesus. That's what I want to ask for God to do in us today in the book of Philippians. I love this book. Uh, one, one of my favorite things that we've ever done as a team is a few weeks ago, before we started to teach through Philippians, what we did first is we just opened it up. And all together, we just read. We took turns reading the whole letter aloud over one another. And we just took it in. And there's no way to read Philippians as a whole and not just feel the pastoral angst and to feel the love and to feel the affection that Paul, the author of this book, has for these people. He planted this church and he loves these people and he knows their stories. And as I, as I read through it, as I read through Philippians as a whole, like there's just no way for me to do that without starting to see some faces of the people in this church, in this body. I start to think about your stories I start to think about your victory and I I start to think about your challenges and I start to think about the relational pain that has happened or is current in your family. 
And, uh, and, and when we get to Philippians, uh, there's a lot of times we read the letters of Paul and it's actually like a big fat rebuke, you know, to, to the people that he's writing to. And when we get to Philippians, that's not what we have. We have this pastoral, encouraging, loving appeal from this man who loves these people. It, 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 it's this appeal uh, for the people of God in the church of Philippi to see all of life through this really long lens. And uh, he's asking them, he's pleading with them, look at your life and look at what Jesus has done for you. And and I'm just pleading with you that by some means of grace, when you see your life and when you see the gospel, the two things would add up and they would actually make sense. Two weeks ago in chapter one, we heard him uh, speak these words to us, live these lives as Christians in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And he starts to remind us, you think you have this citizenship that's earthly or that's in Philippi or that's in Oklahoma city, but actually you have a citizenship that is heavenly. And about the time that we start to ask what in the world does it look like to work any of that out? We get to chapter two and uh, that's where we're going to be today. Many have argued that this is the key passage for Paul's appeal And this is the text that we have. And maybe when you read these 11 verses, it feels kind of complex, doesn't it? Like Paul's kind of a master of the the run-on sentence and connecting all of these ideas together. And uh, maybe you're like me and you you close your eyes and you think, man, I just read these 11 verses and it feels like there's some things that he's asking if they're in place and there's some things that he's calling us to really specifically. And at one point he's like, Jesus is really great and God is exalting him. And, uh, and man, I just think I need to go back through that. That's the way I read the Bible a lot of times. If that's you, I got you. We're going to go back through this really slowly today. And as we dig in, there are a few layers that I think we could pull out. But by far, the biggest layer and the biggest theme that Paul is getting at with this church, and by God's grace, he's getting at with us today, is this theme of humility in the body of Jesus. He's calling us to humility. This whole passage like the rest of the book, is framed in the, relation, in, the, in the context of relationships. Specifically, this is about unity in the body. Here, here you have these people, and they're trying to walk out life together. And he's just saying to them, as you do it, you got to think about others. you got to think about the people that are around you. And I'm asking you to live lives that are worthy of Jesus' gospel. And the way that's going to happen is through this gospel-saturated humility. So that's what we get to do today. Um, And if the whole aim today is for us to see ourselves a little bit more rightly, to see ourselves a little bit more accurately, to embrace some measure of humility with one another, then I think the words of John Calvin are actually helpful to give us some perspective before we dive in. This is what he said. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God. And come down after such contemplation to look into himself. That's really helpful. And today, the text that we're in is going to help us to do both. So here's what I want us to see uh, with our time together. Paul is going to give us a why, a what, and a how of gospel humility. He's going to say why the church would work for humility. He's going to tell us what it would look like if the church would work for humility. And then finally, he's going to help us to know how in the world is this going to happen. So briefly, quickly, uh, the first thing that I want you to see, the why of humility. This is really quick. It's one verse. But man, I think this is massive. Sometimes people pass over this. I feel like in this, in this uh, passage, 
in this text. But this is what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's going to go on to say complete my joy. But what he's doing right here is he's actually being really familial. Uh, This is a member of the family that's writing to these people. This is such a personal letter. He's not writing to the Philippians to go, hey, I don't really know what's going on there. I'm kind of just holding my finger out and and just checking the temperature to see which way the wind is blowing. If any of this stuff is happening, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I know you guys. I've walked with you guys. I've been in your homes. I know the way that God is working among us. He's reminding them of all these times that God has moved in their midst. And he's giving us this really beautiful why at the beginning of the chapter. It's like Paul is saying, guys, if it's true that Jesus has ever done anything beautiful in your lives, and I know he has. And if it's, if it's true that God has ever captured your hearts to make you do things that you never thought you were going to do. And I've seen it. I know he has. If it's true that the spirit of God has ever worked in our church, I want you to listen and I want you to hear me out. This is like this this pastor's tongue-in-cheek way way of saying, guys, I love you. I'm going to call you to something really hard here. But before I do, I want to just remind you of how good Jesus has been to us. If it were one of our pastors in our church here, Frontline South, I think it might sound something like this. If Christ has ever grabbed someone so powerfully that all they could ever do is stand in the waters of baptism and weep over their sin and weep over their forgiveness, then hear me out. If it's ever been true that God has grabbed someone in our church and he's rescued them from stomach cancer, if he's ever done that and we've seen it with our own eyes, hear me out. If it's ever been true that God has captured our hearts in such a way that we saw his mission as greater than our money. We were able to give it all away so that we could buy a building so more people could be reached when no one was expecting it. Hear me, listen to me. If it's ever been true, you guys, that someone, that, that God has grabbed one of our sisters by the heart that was, that was totally taken by pagan worship and voodoo, if it's ever happened that she stood in the waters of baptism and said, Jesus is better. If any of that has ever happened, then I just want you to hear me out and listen to what I have to say. I'm gonna ask you to fight for something together. And then he goes on to share some really practical things about gospel humility. So we have the why, but we also have next, we have the what of gospel humility. Look at verse two. And in verse two, it looks like we have a lot going on here, but it's really just one thing. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It feels like he's calling us to all this stuff and he's just saying, hey, if any of that's true, complete my joy. Listen to me, do me a favor here. Stand with one another in unity. And then we get the next couple of verses, which is the meat of this whole call to the church, the unpacking of what that unity would look like in the context, in the midst of their relationships. Here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Man, does that feel like a punch in the gut to anyone else? 
Now that we've just heard the most impossible part of the whole text, is anyone else thinking, how do we get out of here? What's for lunch right now? (laughs) Um, Man, but maybe we could not rush through this. And maybe it's true that I'm really sinful and I'm really selfish. And maybe it's true that you are too. And so I think it's good for us if we're going to be the kind of people who are actually changed by the gospel and who are actually living lives that are worthy of the gospel, let's wrestle with this. Of all the things that he could say to us, he gives us these three things that are going to help you and me fight for unity. First, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Man, I have this friend and uh, I really believe that God is saving him. I really believe that God is capturing his heart. He has all these questions about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And he's compelled by the gospels as we read through together. He loves the stories. He wants to hear more. But every time he gets close to what I think is him following and trusting Jesus, he chokes on this one thing. And it's the idea of selfish ambition. He just doesn't understand why God would give him all the gifts and all the talents and all the resources and everything that's inside of him. And the truth that maybe all the stuff that God's put inside of him is not just for him, but it's for the people around him also. He just, he's so competitive and he doesn't get that. It's hard to think about giving your life away, isn't it? It's not just hard for my friend. It's hard for me too. And I think if we look around, we look at our culture, everything is screaming at us. You got to get yours. Nobody's going to hand it to you. So grab it while you can. Uh, All of the marketers, uh, every advertisement that's ever written is answering this question for us. What is in it for me? How do I get mine? We're all thrown into this worldwide competition of how can I be better? How can I be faster? How can I uh, uh, get more? And I think if we're honest, if we're all really honest, I think sometimes we would say all the stuff that we're chasing after is not even stuff we want. We just want to win the competition, don't we? This is the way that C.S. Lewis said it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Man, that's true. That's so true in our culture. I think it's, it, it, there's this thing on one hand, we have this call to godly ambition. But what's crazy is we get to the scriptures and we say, what is it that we can do that's about us? What are the things that I can do that's only about me and about my own ambition and about my own conceit? And scripture in a devastating way comes back to us with the answer, nothing, nothing. And then he says these words, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Man, I think if we're honest here, I think most of us really believe that we're living out a screenplay and we're the protagonist. Like we're the main character in our movie or in our novel and all of the people around us, they're just supporting characters in our story. Don't we feel that sometimes? And this scripture that's, that we're reading that's in front of us today is calling us to see that's not the truth. Actually, we're supporting characters in one another's story. We're supposed to bend down. We're supposed to help one another, support one another. We're supposed to count uh, others as more significant than ourselves. 
And I just want to say, this is not saying that you're supposed to read this text and you're supposed to walk away feeling uh, low or less about who God has made you to be. This is not so that we're supposed to walk around putting ourselves down in the presence of other people. What this is saying is um, there is no one around you that you should, you should treat as too low to stoop down and serve or help or encourage. But man... What is it about all of us that so many times just wants the opposite? Like what we really want is for other people to consider us greater than themselves. Isn't that what we want? Now, I was totally found out about this in grade school when I was on the playground. And I would no doubt, probably every day, say something mean to some other kid. And the teacher would come over and um, someone would point at me and they'd say, he's making fun of me. And the teacher would say, oh, He's only saying what he's saying. He's only tearing other people down because he, he's, he's self-conscious about himself. He's trying to build himself up. And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't have a self-esteem problem. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I don't need to build, I don't need to build myself up. I don't need to tear other people down for that reason until I realized that's exactly what was happening. That was exactly what was happening in my own heart. And it's still there. I think it's still there in a lot of us. And uh, I think as we get older, we, we get better about hiding this and sneaking this in. You, you run into a friend that you haven't seen in two or three weeks and they say, hey, how you doing? How's everything been? And, and we all say the same thing, don't we? Oh, great. Man, everything's just really busy. I'm just so busy right now. And they go, yeah, me too. I'm just really busy. So busy. <laughs> and it's like, it's like we're just, we want to say to each other, man, I'm just so important. I'm just incredibly important right now. You know, and they're like, me too, I'm so important. <laughs> and it's like, we go back in that moment to like looking at our phones to see how many people like us on Instagram. It's what we want. I, I get to do this really fun thing. I get to, I get to do a chaplaincy for our local pro, pro soccer team. And last season, I was, I was meeting one of the guys that's new to the team. And I was just saying, hey, man, how's it going? Are you feeling like you're getting to fit in here? Um, what's it like coming from your, your other club? Is this a good fit for you? Are you happy to be in Oklahoma City? And, uh, and the guy just, man, he just got really honest with me. And he said, man, I'm so, I'm so happy to be in this environment. I'm happy to be here uh, with this team where I was coming from. There's just this ugly thing that happens sometimes in the locker room because you might not think about it, but professional athletes, and we have all these pressures and we have all this, all, all these insecurities and, and this pressure to perform and we want to win the starting job. And sometimes those insecurities and sometimes those pressures, they get to us. And the way that it comes out is uh, as we just start to rally around negativity towards the coach. And we just start to say, man, if this guy only knew what in the world he was doing, if he only knew how good I really was, if he only had any idea of how to coach this team, we'd be doing a lot better. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with that guy or that coaching staff. And, uh, and he said this incredible thing. Uh, I'll never forget. He said, it just seems like the easiest thing to unite around sometimes is negativity towards someone else. Wow. I was like, Bro, that is not like a locker room thing. That is a life truth. We're all walking that out. Have you noticed that? When you're self-conscious, when it feels like you're having a hard time fitting in, when you're trying to, when you're trying to make new friends or you feel self-conscious about who you are, the easiest thing to rally around is the faults and the burdens of someone else. 
And I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes like you might not even like the people that you're talking to, but it's just so easy to become their friend when you've got somebody that's not in the room to point to and say, man, there's nothing wrong with us. Let's shift the focus. The problem is this other person, you know, this is the definition of scapegoating. When we unite around the burdens and the faults of someone else, we let them become the scapegoat. We let our pain and our pressure be released by their pain and by their burdens. And at the root of it, what we're seeing in those moments is our own lack of humility. This is us thinking of ourselves as more significant than others. And Paul, man, in this passage, he's giving us something so real, isn't he? Okay, Paul just looks at us in the eyes and he goes, man, stuff hasn't changed since the first century in the human heart. He looks at us in the eyes and, and he just lovingly says, hey, would you, just, would you just stop believing that things have to go badly for someone else for you to feel okay about yourself? Would you just stop doing that? Would you, would you not believe the lie that if something is going well for someone else in their life, it's a loss for you? Would you just not believe that anymore? Would, would we stop, just please, would we stop believing, believing that we're living in like this zero-sum game? And here's a really hard one. Would we stop believing that everything in life is about us? And he loves us enough to say the hard words, walking in the way of Jesus in community. Sometimes it feels like not exalting yourself when you have the chance to count someone else as significant. It's the opposite of that thing that came out of me on the schoolyard. And when it feels bad, when you take the back seat and when you have this chance to make it about you and you have this chance to slip something in about how great you are and you say nothing, but in that moment, you stand in with that person in their story. Can we just let that be like a really sweet offering to Jesus where we just go, God, I don't want to make it about myself. I want, to, I want to count others as more significant than myself. I think Jesus is actually really honored in that offering. And I'm so far from this. Like it's devastating how far I am from this. I want this so bad. I read this text. I read this scripture and I go, God, this is who I want to be. Like, what would it look like, God, if, if in all the moments that I had the chance to make something of myself or exalt myself or make it about me, what if in all of those moments I didn't even notice it because I was so busy thinking about, striving towards, how can I honor all the things that are beautiful in this other person that God has put into them? I want that in myself. I know deep down this is the key to a lot of what's going on in my own marriage and in my own relationship with my kids and my relationship with my friends in my relationship with non-Christians. This is a key to being on mission for Jesus. But the truth is I'm so mixed, man. There are days I want this. There are days that I'm striving for this and I'm, I'm trying to step into it. And there's days where all I can feel is my own selfishness. And my guess is I might not be the only person in the room that feels that way. And if all of this, uh, if, if everything that Paul has said to us so far wasn't painful enough, if it's not painful enough to realize and be told that you're not the most awesome person in the room, every time you step into a room, he goes on and he says these words. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I don't know about you, but this just feels like it's getting out of hand to me. Selfish ambition. I get it. It's bad. Um, 
counting myself as more significant than someone else. I get that that's probably a bad thing. I can get behind that. But now he says these words. Hey, not only in the places that are urgent, not only in the desperate needs that other people have, but in the small places of their life, when you could actually step in and support them or take interest in the things that they care about, I'm going to ask you to step in there too. Man, that feels really hard. The third mark of, of this how of, of how we work out gospel humility is not just taking care of each other and our needs, but stepping in into the interest too. And I, and I just feel the tension in the room. Like all my friends that know I, I want them to love soccer, they just think, okay, he's going to make a case right now for how we have to love soccer. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Um, this is not a passage that says, hey, love everything that everybody loves. Uh, be involved in everything that every, everyone else is involved with. That's not what it's saying. Um, what it's saying is I want to call you to turn away from self-centeredness that's naturally rooted in each one of us. I just want to ask you a question. With your time, is it only about you? With your money and the stuff that you have, with your resources, is it only about you? Um, What's on your mind as you go throughout your day? Is it just the things that are on your plate or are you also thinking about other people too? I have this great friend, Eric. He's my next door neighbor. He's uh, one of the leaders in our church. And over the last couple of weekends, it's so strange. I've just watched him like mow 10 other people's yards. And, uh, and it's crazy. Like Eric, he just realizes I had to get the lawnmower out anyway. I had to change the oil. I had to put gas in. I was mowing my own grass. I might as well just with the time that I've got, I might just think about the neighbors that are a couple doors down or, or, or on the other block. And uh, it's like, Jesus has done something in my friend, Eric, that has made him go, you know what? Um, somebody's going to have to mow that grass in the hundred, hundred degree weather today. It might as well be me. Might as well be me. That's a sweet thing. Uh, for Eric to realize he's not above people and he's not below people, but he's not, he, he's not unwilling to stoop below to serve and to encourage and to help some people. Verse four, it just asks this question with the relationships God has given you with the neighbors and the coworkers and the people that God has put around you in light of living worthy of the gospel. Do the people in your life, do they know that you care not just about yourself, but you care about them too? Yeah, that's a hard one. And it just goes right back to the teaching of Jesus, doesn't it? When he said, hey, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But also love your neighbors, even in the way that you would love yourself. This is hard. Here's the problem. I think as we read this, if anyone is paying attention, if I haven't lost everyone at this moment, then I think what we realize is we feel this tension of how vastly far we are from this. Like we just feel the tension of it. And I think in this moment, we need to realize the tension here is built in. Paul, when he wrote this, he knew that we'd feel it. He knew that the original readers would feel it. And in the middle of feeling this tension uh, that Paul gives us, he also gives us something really breathtaking and really hopeful and really encouraging. He gives us the beautiful how of gospel humility. So he's already given us the why of humility. He's given us the what it looks like. But the last thing I want us to see is the how of gospel humility. Paul, he knows that we're feeling this tension and he's asking us, does it feel really hard to do this? Like, are there moments that it actually feels impossible to live out this kind of humility with the people around you? It's backwards. It's upside down from everything that culture is trying to sell us. If it is, 
Paul says this to us. Look to Jesus. Verse 6. Look to Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, does it ever feel like you're being passed over? Does it ever feel like you're not getting the credit that you deserve? Anyone. We all feel that. And Paul says, look to Jesus. He was God. Jesus was a part of this this thing that theologians call the the Trinitarian dance of God. That is the, the overflowing love of God the Father is coming down. It's falling on Jesus and it overflows out of the Son into the, the, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God loves to glorify the Son and the Son loves to glorify the Father. They call it a dance because in all of the times that they're glorifying one another, in all the times that they're making much of one another and they're, they're showing their affections towards one another, it's never centered on themselves. It's always centered on the others and it keeps going and going and going like a dance. And the, the intention that God had for all of creation is that that dance of God's overflowing love would overflow from the Trinity into you and I, into one another. And throughout the whole earth, there would be this picture of the dance of the love of God. And we totally blew it. We totally blew it. And in the middle of us messing all of that up, Jesus still comes and he says, I'm a loving God and I want people to know my love. And he comes and he leaves that perfect dance of the, of the Trinitarian Godhead. He steps out of that and he makes himself nothing. He's fully God. And he comes and he takes on the limitations of human flesh. He never thought of himself as higher than other people. Um, He never even... He had this chance to grasp at what it means to be God. And he doesn't think of it that way. He thinks of himself uh, the same as regular people. And even more than that, he takes on the form of a lowly servant. He's pouring himself out everywhere he goes. We just see this presence, this incredible presence Jesus is bringing. Think with me about the time that Jesus met with a woman at a well. And he shows up to her. And um, man, everybody's condemned her. Everybody's shunned her. She's had all of the pain of these broken marriages that have fallen apart. And now she's living with a guy that's not her husband. And um, Jesus says, I know your story. And she goes, well, surely you're going to shun me. You're going to condemn me now. And he says, I want to offer you living water. I want to invite you to drink deeply of forgiveness. This is what Jesus does. There's a time that some some Pharisees and some judgmental critics, they drag a woman and they throw her down at the feet of Jesus. And they say, stand over her with us and point your finger with us. We're here to condemn her. And Jesus, he actually bends down and he calls her daughter. He says, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. There's this guy in uh, John chapter nine. He's he's born blind and uh, his whole life, 
He's just trying to make his way through town. He's trying to beg. He's trying to ask for any donations that people will give him. He's been in darkness his whole life. And, uh, and nobody is willing to step into his story. Nobody is willing to come and know him. And what everybody else wants to do is they want to just ask this question. Hey, whose sin is it? This guy or his parents that made him go blind? And Jesus is like, none. None of the above. And he comes to him and he touches his eyes And he says, the reason for this sickness is so that God, my father, would be glorified. I want to step into his story. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to heal him. I want to forgive him. And we see this with tax collectors and sinners. And we see this with lepers. He goes near to lepers. Everyone who's deaf, everyone who's blind, he draws near to them. And then in in John chapter 13, we see that all of his disciples, they've been arguing. They've been walking along the road, talking about who's the greatest Jesus, who's the best? And he bends down and he washes their feet. And he goes, guys, you don't understand. The way up is actually the way down. Jesus, he starts his life in a manger where only animals ever deserve to lay. And his life is ended on a cross. He's raised and hung on a cross in a way that only murderers deserved to die. And God, the father exalts him. He never once exalted himself. Jesus is the only one who could have ever stood and looked us in the eye and said, I'm better than you. I'm higher than you. You deserve to be below me. And what does he do? He goes lower. we, We see this, this journey from the right hand of God, the father, and he steps down and he goes lower and he goes lower to the form of humanity. And then he goes lower even to a servant and he goes lower and he goes lower until they drag him into court and they accuse him and they mock him and they, uh, and they insult him. And they, they have all these accusations and scripture says that he opens not his mouth. And he goes lower to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, this is crazy to me. Therefore, God, the father exalts him. He raises him up to the highest place. The thing that all of us deep down, we want in our hearts is to be higher than everyone else. And Jesus says, the way to get there is to actually go lower and go lower and go lower. The way of Jesus is backwards and it's upside down. And the reason that Jesus comes and he does all of this is so that we might actually live these backward lives with one another and for one another and and around one another. Lives that honor and care for one another and empty ourselves even when it makes no sense. John 17, there's this place where Jesus he's about to go to the cross and he's in the garden and he's crying out to the father and he just goes, God, I'm going to go to the cross. But when I go, would it just be possible that these disciples, these that you have given, would it just be possible that they would really love one another? Would it be possible that they would be unified? God, is there any way that by my broken body and my bloodshed, you would actually unite them so that they could actually walk this out? And amazingly, the passage that we have today in Philippians 2, it promises us that that prayer that that Jesus prayed to God the Father is answered. There's this really great news for Christians here, and it's right in the middle of this section. It's the last thing I want you to see. Look at verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours? The mind of Christ. 
Jesus, he walks the earth, all those stories, and he does it perfectly. And he shows us the model of humility, doesn't he? And that's helpful. Like, I need to see a picture of humility. I'm a visual person. I need to know what it looks like for me to try to walk it out. But more than that, Jesus actually walks all of that out perfectly. And then he says, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take all of your pain and I'm going to take all of your shame and all of your sin. And I'm going to take that in exchange for all of my righteousness. I'm going to give it to you. There's going to be an exchange there. This is really good news. And Jesus says, when I go, it's actually better for you. Because when I go, I'm going to go back to the father and he's going to send the spirit of God who will actually help you to walk all of this out. So we not only have the picture of Jesus and his humility, but we have by God's grace, the mind of Jesus and the very spirit of Jesus. This is the only way that we're going to be able to do this. This is the only how that we're ever going to get. So in closing, here's what I want to say. Maybe you're here and you would say, man, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I've not put all my faith in him. I've not put all of my hope in him. And maybe the hang up that you feel is that there's just no way possible that God could ever love you. And I want to say the best news that you have today is this humility of Jesus. He was willing to stoop low. He was willing to come and seek and save the lost like you and like me. Maybe you think about God as someone who just cares about his own interests. Man, this passage, it blows all that up. What it says is that he was actually willing to come and and care about your own interests more than his own body and more than his own blood. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the God that we love that helps us and walks with us and you can know him today. And maybe you're here and you would say, I'm a Christian and what I want so badly is to grow and I want this to happen in my life. I want to look more like Jesus. If that's true, I just want to say the humility of Jesus is really good news for all of us today. Man, all of us who are striving and all of us who are working, he stooped low so that we could have assurance. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to strive and climb over people so that we can be elevated. Jesus has already elevated us when we didn't deserve it. Um, We don't have to try and work to be something more than we really are. Jesus has made us something more than we ever were or ever could be at the cross. And so I just want to say quickly, if you're in Jesus today, the response that you can look at on your own time is the next few verses. It just says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works. He's at work in you. He's doing this in you. Take hold of the mind of Christ, knowing that God is at work. Amen. Can we do this together? Would you all stand up with me?